As the children are heading towards the door, let me just begin by introducing this sermon is probably the most unusual Christmas sermon you'll hear. Uh, The central subject and concern for this morning is the doctrine of eternal damnation. So let me just back up and get a running start at that for you. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not. See, one of the most precious verses in all Scripture that's well known for a reason has the threat of eternal damnation. Generally, I go into the Christmas holiday season, and somewhere along the lines, one of my kids or my wife will ask me, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? I usually think along two different lines. What would be fun and what do I need? And sometimes it's one or the other. Sometimes it's the happy combination of both. Something that would be fun that I need. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the sweetness of Christmas, the goodness of God's grace are an answer to what should have been on the top of every human being's need list. The reality is most of us don't often contemplate what it would be like if Christ did not redeem us from eternal damnation. It's an uncomfortable topic. I've got to tell you that I do not look forward to preaching this sermon. I realize that if you're a guest with us, you're just right now wondering if you can sneak out without too much condemnation from the church. It's a very uncomfortable topic to consider. I'm going to read our passage from Matthew 13. It'll be verse 47 through 50. And and my introduction is going to be a little bit... um, kind of windy before we really get into the the meat of uh, the doctrine of hell. We look at Matthew 13. Jesus is giving a parable uh, to explain some theological truths about uh, the end of the age and judgment. Here's what he says in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not the first time Jesus has in some way referred to eternal judgment, to the sorting of good and bad, to the damnation of those who reject Christ, to the condemnation of those who, although they claim to follow God, do not. In fact, Uh, Although many people have observed it, and you probably know that this is true, Jesus Christ speaks significantly more about judgment and hell than he does heaven. In fact, let me just give you some references in Matthew just to give you a feeling for just one gospel, how many times Jesus refers to judgment, hell, eternal fire, or something of the sort. He speaks of hell in Matthew 5.22 and Matthew 5.29 through 30 and 10.28 and 16.18.18.9.23.15.23.33 and 11.23. He speaks of eternal fire in chapter 18, 18, chapter 25, 41, in chapter 3, verse 10, in chapter 3, verse 12, again in chapter 5, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 19, chapter 13, verse 40, chapter 18 in several verses, verses 8 and 9 particularly, and chapter 25, verse 41. He speaks of the final judgment again in chapters 5, verses 21 through 22, in verse 25, 
in chapter 10, verse 15, in chapter 11, verse 22, in chapter 12, verse 27, in chapter 12, verse 36, and chapter 12, verse 42. Not even to mention passages like this that actually never specifically say hell. Jesus talks about judgment a lot. And it is really hard for all of us to handle. We hit passages like this and we skate by them quickly. So let's just back up a step and ask ourselves, what does God think of hell? Let me just refer to a couple passages. I think you have them in your notes. The reason I gave you notes is because there is so much scriptural weight to the topic that I thought if I covered this in a sermon that many of you would walk out having um, stood in front of a fire hose, not getting much to drink, but just being soaked and, and not being very refreshed by it. And so I wanted you to have those scripture references so you could enjoy listening and not having to scramble to get all of it in notes. When you look in 2 Peter 3, Scripture says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing, listen to this, not wishing that any should perish. God does not want people to go to hell. I think that's a valuable ethic for the Christian to embrace. I, I can remember and I've heard horror stories of the hellfire and brimstone preacher that seems to almost enjoy talking about sinners going to hell. That is in, in many ways troubling, isn't it? I think the topic of hell should sadden our hearts if we reflect the Lord's heart that says he does not desire these sinners to go to hell. Ezekiel 33, another passage in similar vein says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So I think the heart of the Christian shouldn't look at the topic of hell and find some sort of um, weird glee in the future destruction of those who don't know Christ. And in fact, what we ought to consider when we consider hell is that this is right and righteous for God to do so. But the best answer for us when we consider hell is both gratitude personally for being rescued from it and a desire to see the lost, to see those who are sinners, to see those who don't know Christ, turn to Christ and be saved. Because that brings God glory and it rescues the sinner from what God says he has no desire to see them do, suffer. In eternity future, God will not look on the suffering of the wicked and enjoy their suffering. Even while the Bible is also clear that he will enjoy doing justice. Maybe in the way a righteous society appreciates the proper prosecution of a wicked man. So let's just presume that he's going to be electrocuted. And he's going to be strapped into an electric chair and killed. We would all appreciate if that is the righteous thing to do in a society to both respond to wickedness and keep it from happening in the future. And by the way, for anyone who is concerned about the death penalty, God is the one in Genesis 9 that says that this should be our response. So I just want you to get sidetracked in the illustration. So let's assume this judge is doing righteous. He is executing righteousness in a good way. We would all be troubled if he was the one pulling the lever, laughing. 
And that can be the picture we give God. Rather than focusing on the goodness of the justice and his appreciation of that, we almost picture God as gleeful in the suffering of sinners. That is contrary to the scripture's presentation of our God. I I, want to lay that out because now as we get into the doctrine of hell, it troubles us. And here's then what we do. It troubles our conscience, our sensitivity, our love for our fellow man, and we know loving our, our, our fellow human being is godly, and therefore, we kind of pull out this measuring tape, and we measure God, and we say, he must not be a good God. Or, the doctrine of hell needs to be measured by my understanding of what's good and right, and so we, we edit the doctrine of hell. In fact, Wayne Grudem in his theology says, that this is one of the first places that is typical for someone to begin abandoning Scripture's authority because it is such a troubling doctrine to us. Second Peter is interesting because in Second Peter, he makes the point before saying God is being patient that the person's response on, on average is to see God being patient and thereby say he will never judge. Things will continue on and on as they have been, but God will not judge because he has not done anything. There is no God and future judgment for us. And in fact, I think even the the theory of evolution assumes that to be true. That is, there's this continuous line of time that accounts for all of this change because, in fact, God is simply being patient. And so they assume that patience goes forward and backwards for billions of years, when Scripture would say that's not true. So if Jesus Christ is so committed to teaching on the doctrine of hell, and if when the doctrine is misunderstood, people neglect salvation because they think judgment will never come, and if God is righteous in justice, and that justice brings about the irrefutable and certain judgment of people, the church must talk about it at some point. And so here we stand. So when we come to Matthew, I think Christ is making several points, and I just want to walk through them in, in, in somewhat of a framework that is, I'm going to use Matthew 13 to frame out our discussion of hell this morning. So starting in, in verse 49 again, uh, he gives the theology of the parable. The parable being the story of the fishnet. Uh, it's a dragnet is the type of net it is, as opposed to like this kind of circular net they cast out and it drops. This is the type of net you would string between two boats. Sometimes someone on shore would hold it, and it's this huge net that would be pulled through the water by the boats or by um, one guy anchored in a boat kind of circling around him. And it would catch tons of, or it covered tons of water, and they would hope catch tons of fish. And so Jesus is using this illustration of a dragnet uh, to, to demonstrate what's happening in the current age. Now, what you'll notice in this, in in verse 49, is that in this dragnet metaphor, there are multiple fish caught. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. So who's going to face judgment at the end of the age? Two full categories, and everyone's in one of those categories. The evil and the righteous, the good and the bad. Everyone's going to be facing judgment. Judgment at the end of the age. And the picture of a fisherman gathering all the fish into his basket going, bad, good, bad, bad, good. All the fish get judged. 
He doesn't leave. Half of them in there is like, well, they're, I don't know what they are. No, he goes through and he gets them all and he sorts them. So, so the simple point Jesus is making, this is a startling point for the Jewish people. They're going to be sorted and some of them will be bad. This is incredibly valuable for our society. Most people, if you ask them, will you go to heaven or hell? The answer you will hear next is what? Heaven. And you might follow up if you're kind of bold and say, and what would give you that confidence? And at that moment, all of a sudden, it's like, oh. And then you hear the theology come out. Well, I'm a good person. I go to church. I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Uh, I believe everyone goes to heaven. That's just matters of, of, you know, how good it'll be for us. You'll hear theology leak out at that moment. But most people, their default setting is to presume they go to heaven. Jesus' society would have been no different, except rather than saying, I go to church, I mean, they might say synagogue, but they really would have looked at their heritage. We are God's people. We are the children of Abraham. God chose us. God has, out of all the nations, selected us, and we are his people. What do you mean I might be a bad fish? I mean, what a startling message for someone who's grown up and goes to the temple and, and prides themselves on faithfully following Moses' law. To have Jesus say, God will collect you at the end of the age and you will be sorted and judgment follows. And he gives this message because if you presume that you don't have a need, you never put in your Christmas list. I need Jesus Christ to redeem me. And like in my family, if you don't put it on your Christmas list, it doesn't happen. Israel needed to hear, you need to personally repent and trust. And they needed it no less than we need it. So here's what Romans 2, 5 says. It says, because of your hard and impertinent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each according to his works. To those who are patient and well-doing, seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. A very certain judgment is coming. A day of judgment is appointed for all men. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man which he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance by, the, by raising him from the dead. Even Ecclesiastes makes this point. This is not something that should be entirely new for the Jewish people. Ecclesiastes 12.13 and 14, here's the end of the matter. Have any of you read the book of Ecclesiastes recently? It goes through all of this stem-winding discussion of satisfaction and fulfillment of life. He gets to the end, he's like, okay, here's where I'm going. Here's the whole book summarized in a nutshell. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Matthew 25, 31 when the Son of Man appears in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Not bad, bad fish, good fish, now sheep and goats. Same point, though, isn't it? All the nations will be gathered. Go to Revelation 20. It says it this way. He will judge both small and great. It's not just kings and presidents and rulers and senators and governors that get judged. It's also the poor person who has nothing to govern but his own self. All get evaluated before Jesus Christ. It's not simply that, though. Everyone will be held accountable. And I think Scripture presents two ways in which we'll be held accountable. And I think, I think we have to do some synthesis here. You can remember as a youth pastor, I asked um, them to explain the gospel. And then I read to them verse after verse after verse in order to shake their faith. Because it starts like this. Well, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. I said, really? So what do you do with Ecclesiastes where it says, everyone will be judged according to his deeds? Like, well, the Bible says you'll be saved by faith. I'm like, well, the Bible says you'll be judged according to your deeds. So which is it? And at that point, it's like, whoa. Faith? I'm like, are you sure? So let me just read you a few more verses. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is done in the body, whether it is good or evil. Matthew 12.36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless thing or every careless word that they speak. Matthew 11.22, but I tell you it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you, for you, Capernaum, will, be, will you be exalted above the heaven. No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable for you on the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. His point there, and I'll get back to it in a second, is that their response to him shows their wickedness. Or how about 1 Peter 1.17? If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... So let me ask you again, are you saved by deeds or by faith? You all know the right answer. You're like, man, I don't like this. <laughs> okay, here's, here's the tension that Scripture tells us, and I think it's helpful for us to recognize because the church itself has messed this up really badly historically. If you were to walk around among cults and false religions that hold up the Scriptures, they get this wrong to their eternal judgment. So we cannot get it wrong. The reason the Bible is able to focus on, on the judgment of deeds is because I think the Bible presents two ways in which God evaluates you. So the first would be this, that the Bible evaluates you on the basis of your response to the saving grace of God through Jesus Christ. So that we have passages like this, Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, I just felt relief from you all. Like, like oh, he's going to get there. Salvation is not by works. Okay, so if the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, we need to wrestle through the fact that God says he judges each one according to their deeds. Multiple times in Scripture he says that. Before and after that passage in terms of time of writing. So the Scripture would see no conflict by, by its claiming salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and also claiming you will be judged according to your deeds. The church has often had a hard time reconciling these two. 
So that if we were to go, and I'm not trying to be unkind to any particular church, but I think truth would tell us to be honest about churches that get it wrong. Generally speaking, the theology of the Catholic Church focuses on the deeds done as how we get saved so that salvation is not anchored to Christ alone. And that's significantly bad. I think the Bible would indicate that alone will make toxic the gospel so that it cannot and will not save anyone who believes only or partially or in any way filters in their goodness into the saving work of Christ. Okay, so how do we reconcile these two? I think there is a, a judgment, maybe we could say like, like a judicial or forensic would be your theological words, but here's the point. There is a declaration judgment where the good fish and the bad fish are separated. The good fish are all those who are in Christ. So if you're, if you're writing down passages, I'm not sure if I included it in your notes, 1 Corinthians 15, 22. It says, as in Christ, all will be made alive. I reverse the order here on the quotation. As in Adam, all die, so also in Christ, all will be made alive. So the point would be that your relationship to Adam and Christ are the basis with which God sorts you. Again, you can look at, at, at Romans 8, 1. Or we could go to a simple verse like John 3, 16, whoever believes has what? Eternal life. He says it again in John 3, 18. He says it again in John 5. For instance, let me read you John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So, so we have this initial answer of God based on the faith of the person in Jesus Christ alone. That is the basis with which he sorts you. Then, upon sorting you, so if you're following the parable in Matthew 13, you're either a, thank you, good fish or bad fish. I mean, I don't think fish are very intelligent. I'm not sure if Christ is saying anything about that to us, but... We're either a good fish or a bad fish, Matthew 25. We're either a sheep or a goat. Then, the accounting for eternal judgment follows that. And that is the basis of eternal reward or punishment in terms of intensification. So maybe you can think about, think about it as in these two stages. Uh, my daughters right now are competing on GPAs, and it's really funny for me because it's actually going to help them get better grades. So they can do all they want. I'll keep begging them on. At the end, I hope they graduate. Graduation day, generally speaking, most of us, we might squeak across the finish line, but we usually get there, right? Think of the judgment as you either graduate or you don't. Okay? You either pass or you fail. But for those who graduate, you know, there are some very smart people who have bad habits of laziness and neglect. Often the smartest person in the class does not have the best GPA. And they're sitting there on graduation day telling all the people around them, oh, I could have gotten that. You know, I could have been valedictorian. And everyone's like, oh, come on, stop it. You didn't. And that's what matters. 
And so the person that walks up there and has all these ribbons and all this glory gets glory for actually doing something. So there's graduation. Who on graduation day, generally speaking, is happy? All the graduates. I bet there's some people not super happy. They're 18 and they're sitting there going, hmm, I got to take summer school. <laughs> right? They're not. All graduates experience the joy of graduation. All the good fish will experience the joy of heaven. So there are a couple passages I read. I didn't read uh, 1 Corinthians 3, but 1 Corinthians 3 as well as 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 5 are speaking of the judgment of believers to rewards and punishment. I shouldn't say rewards and punishment. I should say rewards and loss of reward. So let me read 2 Corinthians 5. It's speaking to believers. We all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is done and what he has done in the body, whether it is good or evil. So it's speaking to the graduating class, saying, you're graduates, you're in heaven, but there will be reward based on how you behaved after salvation. You are either going to receive more reward for eternity, or you are going to receive less reward for eternity, but you're all going into heaven. Are you tracking with me? I think this is valuable because it is... It is Interesting to me how often people are just simply happy crossing the finish line. And Jesus constantly is calling people to do something like lay up for yourselves. Where? He's telling you don't be okay with passing with like a D minus. And he's saying there's something better than a couple ribbons and a boring speech. You get eternal, irrevocable, permanent glory in the kingdom that will never fade, never be lost. And that's the point. You can get gold, you can get houses, that stuff is going to be burned up, but moth and rust will not touch the treasures of those who invest in heaven. That should motivate us. That should energize us. Paul reminds the Philippians of that when he calls them to give financially to trade the moth-eating, or moth-edible, and rust-prone stuff of this world to get uncorruptible glory. The second element is those who don't graduate to heaven, those who get condemned to hell. The Bible would also indicate that there are increasing levels of sorrow for them. And I don't just mean sorrow in the sense they're more and more sad. I mean sorrow in the sense that there's more and more punishment, more and more severity. Someone asked me uh, just recently, if hell is so miserable, how can you be more miserable than miserable? I mean, isn't like everything 100%? I think the Bible would indicate that's not the case. I don't understand what that means. Like I, I imagine being in a place of burning torment as as bad as it can be. But scripture would indicate to me that there are levels of punishment in hell so that there is miserable torture in hell and there's more miserable torture in hell and more, more, and more miserable torture in hell so that we shouldn't be thinking of hell as simply a static place of pain but a place, a place of graduating intensity of pain to more and more. Again, let me, let me read it to you what he says about uh, these cities that have been um, hearing and seeing the work of Christ. It will be more bearable 
on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon. Matthew 11, if you're trying to follow. Verse 22. Then for you, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven. You'll be brought down to Hades. Now, here's the point. I think this helps us understand then at least part of the grading scale. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So let me be really blunt to you. You're sitting in an evangelical church, maybe week after week, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible indicates that for you, your accountability grows the more you hear of Christ, the more you read of him in the scripture, and the more you resist the grace of the Holy Spirit's work. So that if you don't graduate and in fact are condemned forever, the intensity with which you are punished exceeds a city that so stirred up God's anger by its sexual sin and rejection of all that is good and destruction of the innocent people in its city through the corruption of sexual impurity that he killed the city with fire and brimstone rather than let it continue existing. I mean, as bad as Las Vegas is, it's not there yet. It's still alive. And God measures the person sitting in church still rejecting him as worse than Sodom that was going to publicly rape people homosexually because they were good-looking. I mean, America's gone away down the well of badness, and we are not yet to the place where someone enters into a city and it's like, we can get away with it, and the whole community rises up to rape them. I mean, that is breathtakingly bad. And God says it's worse to be in church and reject Jesus. That's sobering, isn't it? If there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, today, turn to Jesus. Please. So, let me just summarize. If you are in Christ, there is no judgment and condemnation. If you reject Christ, there is judgment and condemnation. That judgment and condemnation, that reward and, and eternal salvation is measured out to you based on how you respond to the grace of God. If you respond by faithfulness and righteousness and Christ-likeness, more and more goodness comes upon you forever. Hebrews 11 says that we must believe in order to please God that he is a rewarder in Hebrews 11.6. That speaks to his character, not to what he does. You know, there are some people who, by nature, are a certain type of human being. Someone confessed to me recently that they're a hoarder. I think I am too, a little bit. Some of you are grumblers. Some of you are happy people. Like, that's just who you are. You meet a situation like, oh, it'll work out. And everyone looks at you like, what? Some of you, you still have trash from 25 years ago that you think you might use one day. And, and that's, your character leads you to do certain things. God's character is a rewarder. So what will he do to the righteous? Reward them. What will he do to the wicked? He'll reward them. Rewards aren't necessarily positive. They're just a response of God's justice to the behavior of the people in his world. So, 
Everyone will be held accountable. Everyone individually will be held accountable. According to their deeds, and the first judgment and the first assessment is rooted on their relationship to Christ and how God views them before his judgment seat. The next point is a little more serious, and I know time is short, and that might be in its own way a little bit of a grace. Hell is a place of fiery torment that lasts forever. It lasts forever. Multiple times in Matthew, if we were to read through all those texts, we'd hear the words fire, fiery, eternal flame. Matthew 13, 50 says this, they will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Those words are reminiscent of of the story in Daniel where these men were thrown into this blazing uh, inferno. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Gnashing means grinding. It's used a couple times of those who are angry. It may in fact indicate that people in hell as citizens of hell are not at all sympathetic with God, but angry at their judgment, angry at the pain they're suffering, angry at the other fellow citizens of hell. This is used of of the people who were about ready to stone Stephen. They were gnashing their teeth as he was testifying to the grace of God. Think of that response forever. As they see who God is and what he's done, they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, but they will, it seems to be, be absolutely miserable in doing so. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, in both emotion as well as in content of hell, tells us it's bad. It is a fiery furnace. Anyone who says there will be a party in hell needs to read that it's not simply a fiery furnace. It's a place not filled with partying but weeping. Mark 9, 43 and I'm going to read verses 47 and 48 as well. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 47. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The word hell in the Greek New Testament is taken from a valley on the southern side of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom. That valley in the Old Testament was used for the sacrifice of babies to Moloch. Uh, Baal sometimes, but basically Moloch. And I think it was Hezekiah that took and destroyed that valley and made it a trash heap so that it would never be turned back to idolatry and used for, uh, for human sacrifice ever again. And because of that, they would burn their refuse there as, as human excrement and sewage and trash. And so they, they, would, they would deal with their trash heap sometimes the way we do is they burn it. So here's the picture Christ uses of hell. It is this place condemned. It is a place of never-ending fire for the destruction of everything that goes there. So it says the worm doesn't die. That's because if you were to go to the Valley of Hinnom, it's this place where fire and, and corruption, I don't know whether he's thinking maggots or what types of worms are, are infiltrating this whole entire cesspool of a valley. But if you think of the most unpleasant place, think of living in a sewer swamp that's on fire all the time. That's the Valley of Hinnom. And it never ends. 
ever ends. There have been certain things that have been long, and I've been long-suffering in them. And you maybe have experienced these things. L.A. traffic, a Hallmark movie. (laughs) On a serious note, maybe it's your suffering, and the Lord is not lifting his hand of pressure. Maybe it's a family circumstance that just breaks your heart, and you cannot escape it without sin, and so you do not escape it. You stay, and it hurts, and it feels hopeless, and it's long, and you're crying out for rescue, and it never ends, and you feel hopeless and trapped. Sometimes it's just maybe in a career. You can't leave because it's your, your, your whole life is invested in the pursuit of this career, and to leave it, you'd have to like restart and work at McDonald's, and so you feel trapped. But it's miserable, you hate it, and, and your coworkers are, are making life miserable. We might use the phrase living hell. You will comfort yourself in multiple ways through those things, but one of them is it will end. At retirement, Maybe that person, their heart will change and there'll be rescue. Maybe, maybe the physical sorrow and the pressure on you, whether it's a cancer or whether it's uh, physical barrenness, whatever it is that, that is that is pressing on you, there are ways of escape that we look to and we find comfort in them. And, and, and as you survey life, you find people getting comfort because they know escape is coming somehow. And if we keep surveying and we look into eternity and we see people in suffering in hell and we say, what gives them hope? What gives them relief? And how do they comfort their souls in affliction? Jesus' answer echoes back with a horrifying hopelessness of there is no escape. Ever. We sing the song, It says about being in heaven after 10,000 years will have just begun. And we look at that song, we're like, yeah, that's so true. Heaven is forever and so good. Flip it upside down and put that in hell. After 10,000 years, they've just begun to suffer. That's heartbreaking. It's horrifying. And whether I'm speaking to you in person or online, whether you're on the campus and you're hearing this, Jesus Christ suffered no less on the cross. So this is where we flinch, isn't it? This is where we're like, oh, there's got to be some relief. There is no way God will do that. He's good. I want you to span back the other direction and look at the goodness of Christ and recognize he suffered all of that while on the cross. Maybe just by illustration, uh, some of you are old enough to remember dial-up. Remember dial-up internet? I remember we were excited. We had 14.4. If anyone even knows what that means. That means when you like load a website, you watch it go line by line by line and load a picture. You go get coffee and come back and sit down and the picture's half done. Some of you young people have no idea of the horror that that is. 
Jesus, Jesus Christ, I think, helps us understand the difference between like the high-speed internet we have today where we, we, see a web, uh, we click on something and a website loads in a flash. Why is hell unbreakable in its length and eternal? Because as frail creatures, despite the fact that we carry the image of God, the torment that can be borne by the human soul is like dial-up. And so forever, God will be dosing out judgment upon the soul in hell. If you want to know how certain and serious the sin is that we have, and how right God is in his justice. When we look at Christ and we say, well, he only suffered for three days. It's because it's the difference between a slow, unending pain to get to the place where they would suffer infinitely when Christ, in the full bandwidth of God, suffered on the cross infinitely in just a few hours. And God is going to be loading his wrath forever they will never suffer as much as Jesus did. Hell is breathtakingly bad. The cross is breathtakingly bad for Christ so that we could be saved. Some of you right now, you're bleeding in your bank accounts to get Christmas to be fun for your family or your kids or your spouse. It's expensive to give. The horrors of hell were paid for by Christ to give you the gift of life. Sometimes we, we walk through a message like this and we have one application. Let's give people the hope of Jesus. Please turn to Jesus, we say. Turn from your sin and get saved. That is not a wrong application. If you don't know Jesus Christ, get saved. Him today by trusting in him and turning from sin. But there should be in the Christian this sense of relief, this sense of price not paid, of goodness, of grace. How precious and costly is the work of Jesus Christ? How good our Savior that he unflinchingly obeyed his Father, went to the cross, and suffered vast amounts of suffering so that you could be saved. And think about the immensity of Christ's suffering and recognize as, as the Son of God, he died knowing who you are. Would you die for you? Would you suffer that for someone else in this room? I mean, your shoulders couldn't bear it anyway. And he looked at you and chose to die for you. Can we all just internally right now say, thank you, Jesus? And I don't know where you're at mentally, but you ought to be thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The next time you're tempted to complain about the government or COVID responses, remind yourself what you deserve. Unending, hopeless, horrific pain without rescue or remedy.
And Jesus paid it all for you by deliberate choice to suffer in your place. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, just to finish off that point, uh, one of the things my theology professor told me, and I, it, it's, it's terrifying, is that the image of God implanted upon us is indestructible. God in the Garden of Eden, when he said, let us make man in our image, graced us with the indestructible image of who he is. And for eternity, he will be destroying the indestructible image that he planted on us, ripping from us his image that can never be taken away, so that you will always be being destroyed and yet never destroyed. He called hell God's torture chamber because he is wrenching away his image from the image bearer forever. That has stuck. And it is terrible in the pain and the cost it will have on the creature made in the image of God. That's why animals won't be in hell. I'm not going to say anything about whether or not they're in heaven. Let me read 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. We probably miss the horrifying statement. So let me read it again. This eternal destruction is away from the presence of the Lord. If you want to transition mentally with me to heaven. Heaven's greatest hope, the greatest joy and the greatest glory of heaven is what? You guys are all afraid to answer. Don't worry, you may still graduate. God will be there. The Bible would say something like this. I will be their God and they will be my people. Second Thessalonians, they will be in eternal destruction away from his mighty presence forever. God will dwell on earth with his people. He will be the center of this heavenly city that descends and joins the earth. There will be a new economy. There will be invention. There will be creativity. Heaven is a place of deep and eternal joy. Hell is a place of fiery torment that never ends. Heaven is a place of lasting joy. There will be culture and society, relationships and friends. Learning, memory. You'll remember stuff. Without going down this rabbit hole, I am assuming that there will be cars and air conditioning. There will be invention. There will be theology, study, science, and arts. It would be really fun to hear music in heaven. I do not think it's going to be played with just a harp and people wearing giant adult diapers. 
Some of you think that's what heaven is. Let me just, you do. We have made heaven not something delightful. Just imagine with millions of people, some of them the, the most profound artists in all of time and humanity, putting their creative efforts together to make music, and not one of them is a sinner, and all of them have a sanctified, holy theology, and they write songs for us to sing. It'd be so fun. It'd be really fun not to hear someone say, oh, you can't sing that, that's not super godly. That will never happen in heaven. It'd be amazing to see people do art for the glory of Christ. There'll be society, culture, enjoyment. There'll be hobbies. There'll be work that will be fun. Some of you enjoy your work. The rest of us, there's a reason they pay us to do it. Your work will bring you joy. Some of you, you labor for money, but then you have hobbies around the house or around the community that you just really deeply enjoy. Forever, we will pursue work that brings delight and joy, not simply to us, but to others. Let me just give you the example of cooking. Some of you just love cooking. And you would love to have the time and the money just to cook. Your world will be filled with people and friends who to consume their hours pursuing those types of joys for the glory of Jesus and the good of their neighbor. Forever. There will be no damage, decay, danger. God dwells with us so that we not only do these things and enjoy them, we are doing them for the glory of Christ. There are nations and societies, there's economies, there are borders, there are probably languages and cultures. It'd be so fun to visit cultures that have been stripped from sin. Can you imagine the American culture without sin? I have no idea what that looks like, but it'd be fun. To travel the world, made new, so that all of the energy of, of a culture's expression and all of the things are like, oh, that's really cool. Let's experience that. I want to eat that thing. I don't think I'll like it, but I just want to try it. In heaven, purged from sin, every culture will display the creativity and the beauty of God and Jesus Christ, and we will forever engage in those experiences. What does Chinese culture look like without sin? I don't even know what it looks like with sin. It will be really fun to go there in heaven, in the new earth, and engage in cultural exchange and have no concern over sin. I will not be able to offend them. That will be fun. This is eternity for those who are believers. It is not. You don't have to confess and repent. You might want to. It is not a never-ending, boring song service. That's how I pictured heaven when I was a kid. And, and you think about heaven, you're like, what? Yay. Like, really, after, after 20 minutes, I'd be bored. Well, that's not true. And I knew it intellectually, I wouldn't be bored, but I kind of wonder if it will be. Right? Like, you've been, you been there? I cannot do heaven justice with my descriptions. God tells us so much less about heaven than he does hell. Read Revelation 20, 21, and 22. It has a sobering confidence 
that judgment is coming and the rewards of God's faithful are also coming. Let it sober you and motivate you. Let it give you hope and secure you. And let it warn you from sin. When I mention that God judges us according to our deeds, there should be a little bit of concern for a type of Christian, and I use that loosely right now in this room. It could be that you claim to believe in Christ. Scripture would indicate your evidence of that is behavior. You shall know them by their fruits, Scripture says. So when I say graduating or not graduating, good fish, bad fish, like Jesus Christ does, there are some people who think they're good fish, and Jesus Christ preaches a message to say, check yourself. You may not be a good fish. Check yourself. So if God judges according to our deeds, one of the things we should be aware of is that Scripture says our deeds reveal whether or not we have saving faith. If you have no desire for Christ, if you don't enjoy church, if you don't enjoy the study of Scripture, if worship is already boring for you and we just sing two songs, these are indicators you might not have the living faith of Jesus Christ. If your life is filled with sin, that's being unrepented of. If you have broken relationships everywhere you turn, these are fruit of someone who does not love Jesus. And they might be indicators. You're a rotten fish. Judgment is certain. God judges according to our faith in Christ and subsequently rewards us according to our behavior. Hell is a fiery, never-ending torment. Heaven is deep, never-ending joy. And those who hear the message of Scripture should be moved to love Christ, be thankful for him, believe in him, and tell the world about him. Are you praying for the nations? Are you praying for people who do not yet even have any Scripture in their language? Are you praying that God might send you or your children, or your grandchildren? Are you concerned that there will be people across this globe who will live, produce life, and work, and labors, and end their life, and die, never having heard of the sweetness of Jesus? Does that break your heart? When you look at your sin, and you realize you too deserve the cross. Does it cause you to live away from sin? It causes you to be serious about it. There are so many applications we could pursue when we consider hell. Let me just give you two. Be a missionary and pray for missionaries. Be thankful. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you know that we tremble and we don't like or enjoy considering a theology of judgment. A theology of the afterlife that brings us face to face with how bad we are. And so we minimize how bad we are because we don't think we deserve hell. We minimize what Christ has done on the cross because we don't understand the weight on his infinite shoulders of all of our sin. We suffer almost no shame at our badness. And we certainly don't think torture 
is something we deserve. Father, these are ways in which we come into the presence of Scripture and we are being told we need to change. Forgive us for thinking it's you that's wrong. Father, instead, I pray that this morning at the least, you would stir up in us a godly desire to see the wicked man turn from his way so that he would not be judged. And I pray, Lord, that it would also produce a deep joy, an unbreakable happiness because we have been rescued by the gift of Jesus Christ. And having been given this indestructible joy, Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts from complaint, frustration, discouragement, pain that that is simply allowing us to, to be miserable rather than turning back and looking at the precious gift of salvation that Jesus Christ purchased. Father, he is good. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this generous gift of salvation that has rescued us from hell. Father, pray now for our church family, particularly for this thought. There might be someone in here who doesn't know Jesus, who is not saved, who has never turned from sin. And so for that soul, Lord, I pray, through the work of your Holy Spirit, would you please turn them to Jesus Christ, cause them to repent of their sin, and redeem them today, and forgive them of all of their trespasses. I pray, God, do this work. Save sinners today. Amen.